to Acts chapter 2. In peace. And I want to just remind you somewhat of the logic of this Sunday school series so far. I've actually thought of talking to Joey about renaming the Sunday school series instead of the doctrine of the church, more specifically focused on the sufficiency of Scripture for the local church. Um, Kind of the key text that has been our mainstay in everything we've talked about is 2 Timothy 3, 15, 16, that the Word of God is sufficient. I'll, I'll read that text again just so we can have it in our minds. I think it's great for us to be reminded of this wonderful Wonderful text of Scripture. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we read, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and notice, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Notice, in verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for what? Every good work, right? Um, The Scripture is sufficient. And it's not just sufficient for our personal lives of godliness to tell us what we ought to do and what we ought not to do. It's sufficient for the church of God, right? How we order the church. We believe we are to look to Scripture and nowhere else for how we are to do that. And we've looked at what that looks like in worship with Brother Joey going through the regulative principle of worship. We've looked at it as, well, an ethic, right? So, liberty of the Christian conscience that nothing binds the Christian's conscience rightly but the Word of God itself, right? We do nothing out of conscience. Now, we obey many things, many laws, but nothing out of conscience as worship to God but what the Bible tells us to do, right? And the last two weeks, we've been looking at how the Bible talks about what I've been saying is the constituent elements of God's church, And what do I mean by that? Uh, We've talked about how every church is meant, well-ordered, to have elders, plural, deacons, if necessary, and today we're going to talk about members, right? Now, as we've talked before, we believe very strongly that membership um, is, is taught in the Scripture, and the elders and deacons are not some group outside of membership, but rather they are members in the church that just have a particular function within that church. And so, today I have the difficult, and I don't even know if difficult is the right word, the uh, nerve-wracking, just because I know um, how often this can be misunderstood, the goal of trying to define and show that church membership is commanded and taught in the Holy Scriptures, okay? So, just to introduce this, I want us to think about some of the things that we often hear in our American culture. Because when we talk about church membership, it's always helpful, at least for me, I love history, to look back at history and to see how things were done in ages past and try to compare how we think today, and perhaps that will highlight some errors that we have in our own hearts, right? Membership in the local church, whether we have a formal membership role written out or not, has always been a part of the church from the earliest days. Even in the early days, right after the apostles, we can read in church history of they'd have one service where the word of God was proclaimed widely to whoever came and entered the doors. But after that meeting, they would gather, sometimes in the evening, to have communion. And that would be a closed service. 
something that kind of grates against our American ideals here, but it'd be a closed service only for the members of the church, the baptized covenant members of that church, to come together and to eat and drink together and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Um, We can see this throughout history, but beginning at really the 1830s and beyond, there's this hyper-individualism that took over American culture, and even fundamentalism and evangelicalism that took over American culture where we kind of started to shed these notions, started to question, is membership really taught in the Scriptures? And while we have no verse in the Scriptures that says, you must be a member of the local church, we have to realize that when we look in the Bible to be able to see how we are to live and what we are to believe, there are many things that we must take various pieces of the Scripture together and consider them and come up with a logical implication. Such as, as I brought up many times, the doctrine of the Trinity. Nowhere do we have a Bible verse that says that there are three persons in one Godhead that are equal in being, right? We don't have that. But we take together all the texts of Scripture that talk about God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, God the Father, and we deduce that there is only one way to understand these things put together, and that is the Holy Trinity. And I would propose to you today that formal church membership is a way, is taught in the Scripture. Now, when we think of membership, what do we think of in our mind? What are you a member of? Sam's Club. You're a member of Sam's Club? Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, no, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Teamsters. Joe, we won't judge you for that. Teamsters. <laughs> um, what, what, what else are we members of? Fa- family. That's exactly right. Now, that is qualitatively different, isn't it? So in our American way of thinking that is consumer-driven, when we think of membership, I think part of our problem is we think of these very superficial categories, that I'm a member of Sam's Club, I'm a member of the Teamsters, I'm a member of the NRA, or whatever it might be, and the idea is that these organizations, I'm a part of them because they serve me, or I believe in what they're doing, so I'm going to put myself voluntarily behind them as long as they continue to serve me as a consumer. Right, And that kind of membership is absolutely nowhere taught in the Scripture. But, I would say, that's mostly how we think. But the problem not only is how we think of membership, it's how we think of church in general, right? I mean, there are many churches that we could name, probably the majority of churches that we could name, that have membership. But when you go down and look through those membership roles, you have 300 members in the church, and they have 50 people gathered on Sunday morning. Membership has come to mean nothing in those churches. It's merely a way of throwing your consumer hat in the ring. I'll be a member of the church, but it doesn't mean anything. And I would say that Miss Emily is absolutely right. When the Bible talks about membership, what it's talking about is a member of a family. And that's explicitly stated. And so my goal today is to give you the reasons that I believe that membership is commanded in Scripture. And I want to give you, let me see here, one, two, three, four, five, six arguments to show you how membership is commanded in Scripture. But first, I want us to look at the language of Scripture, the language of Scripture. So please turn with me to Romans chapter 12, in verses 4 and 5. Now, we could make an argument that throughout the 
New Testament, as you're looking at this passage, that the word member is used to describe Christians, right? We're, we are called members of the body of Christ, called members of one another, right? And when we consider that, we can say, well, that doesn't necessarily apply to the local church, and I agree, because the body of Christ is a universal, uh, organic being, so to speak, that we are added into the body of Christ. But the Scriptures talk in such a way where we have to narrow that, I believe, to make sense of the text of Scripture. Notice in verse 3 of Romans 12, For by the grace of God, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body... We have many members, and the members do not have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service and our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And while we can read this text and come up and add to our biblical theology that we are members of one another in the universal church, we have to keep in mind that Paul is writing to a specific congregation in this context, right? And as these members, and I'll use that language boldly, of Romans in the Roman community heard this language they would not be thinking of some broad universal church just like you don't think of that. When I read this text and I tell you that you're members of one another, I'm hoping you're thinking, oh, I'm a member. The Gonzas are a member of my family, right? Thinking, Brother Jacob is coming in to become a member of our family and we're going to use our gifts, not in some broad way to the universal church, but specifically to the body of Christ in our midst. I would say that's the natural way to read Scripture, and that's the natural way the Romans would have heard this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 as well. Now, again, none of these arguments may be convincing in and of themselves, but my, my ask of you, my request of you today, is that you would take all of these things and try to put them together and just ask honestly in your heart, what do we think the whole of Scriptures teach about membership? So, again, the language of Scripture, I'm going to read verse 12 through 27. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not the hand, I do not belong to the body, that would make it... That would not make it any less part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I, do not, I am not the part of the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were the ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would all the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body we think less honorable. We bestow greater honor on our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body 
giving greater honor to the part that lacked, that there be, may be no division in the body, that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers. Do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. What I'm proposing to you here is that this text is most specifically applied not to the, the church universal, but to the church local. That these people would have specific people in their minds. This church was struggling with spiritual gifts and putting an overemphasis on those gifts. Some gifts over others. And Paul is correcting that in Corinth, the local church. Now, we see also the language of not just members, but we have the, the language of citizens, household, and family. So, turn with me to Ephesians 2.19. We're going to be using a lot of... A lot of a lot of Bible texts, so please stick with me. And again, this argument is, is just roughly, and it's probably the weakest argument, I think, but it's about the language that the Scripture uses. Ephesians 2.19. Notice, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, this point is, is not necessarily to the local church, But what's being said here is the kind of membership that we're talking about is the membership that is involved in citizenship, right? Not a consumer kind of membership, but a membership of citizenship. Now, how does citizenship differ from a membership to Costco or Sam's Club or what is it? What does that imply? Brother, responsibility, right? Being devoted to that that country, that nation that you're a citizen of, right? To do good to it. No matter how you think that good is to be accomplished as a citizen of a country, the idea is I'm devoted to do good to this nation, right? So, also, 1 Peter chapter... Oh, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 3. It says, uh, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And so the idea here is not just the elders, but the whole church is involved with defending the truth of the gospel, being a pillar and the buttress of the truth. This is the, the gathered congregation. And in the context of 1 Timothy, I think we would all agree that Timothy is talking to Paul about, I'm sorry, Paul is talking to Timothy about how he ought to behave and train the church to behave in the local church in Ephesus. That local church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And they were learning how to behave, not in the universal church, but in the local congregation. And then um, that's the argument that I have briefly for language. Uh, When we talk about membership in the church, we have the term members, and I would say to you that when we read those texts, especially Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, it is most natural to apply those things, not to the universal church, but to a local church body, that we're members of one another in this congregation. We're also called citizens. We're called a household in 1 Timothy. 
And we are called a family in many places in Scripture as well. Um, So that kind of membership is implying that there's great responsibility and we're devoted to one another. So, um, the second argument, and I'm trying to go from least convincing to most convincing, at least in my mind, we have arguments of implicit lists within the New Testament. So, we might have in our mind, well, nowhere in the Bible do we have a membership role, but we, we come close to it, I think. So, in Acts chapter 1, in Acts chapter 2, I think that we get the clearest representation of this. Um, Acts chapter 1, we see the argument for church members in that the church in Jerusalem in the ancient days seemed to keep a number of the people that were actually part of that congregation. Now, in verse 15, we see that in those days Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of the, the persons was in all about 120, and said, now, the question that we have is how would Peter know that the persons gathered that were Christians were about 120? We might say, well, he just looked around the room and made an estimate in his head. But I think it's likewise reasonable to think that they knew how many people were a part of that congregation. I think even more convincing is in Acts chapter 2, in verses 41 and 47. This is after Peter preaches the sermon at Pentecost. And I'm going to read... For time's sake, uh, I want to read the whole paragraph, but I'll start in verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Notice verse 41. Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And we might say, well, added to what? Well, we could say to the universal church. But I think the more practical application here is that it was added to the local Jerusalem church and partly because of what we read after that. Notice, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Notice that language very closely. I think it's fascinating. These 3,000 souls, what is recorded about them? They devoted themselves, right? That's what we've been talking about, is membership in the Scripture. Membership of a family, a citizenship. It's being devoted to a particular group of people. And they devoted themselves to one another, not just in the apostles' teaching, but notice the fellowship, the breaking of bread. These things imply community, don't they? We see in verse 47, they were praising in favor with all the people. And notice the language, and the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Again, there are multiple ways to take this passage, but I think it's a reasonable conclusion that they were actually added to the local church in this text. Okay. We have these implicit lists, and I would say that the church knew who the members of that congregation were. They had faces in mind. They knew who were outsiders and who were insiders. And a a really good illustration, I think, from modern days um, is that I've heard a brother who went to go visit a a closed country where the gospel was illegal, where you couldn't be a part of a church unless that church was registered with the government, right? And these people gathered together in this apartment. I think this apartment, they they crammed in 90 saints into these, these rooms. And they had their service. And this pastor said that the pastor of this church said, did you notice those two in such and such a room, those two people? 
And he said, yeah. What we're thinking is, oh, visitors, that's wonderful. But that's not what they were thinking. What were they thinking? These might be government informants coming in to take note of who's coming to this church and, and worshiping illegally. I tell you today, this is on a side note, but church membership serves a very good function in countries where the gospel is closed. Outsiders are looked at with suspicion because they could be coming to persecute the local church. And I think in the New Testament, it was much the same. The church knew who the members were, they knew who belonged, and they knew who didn't belong. Okay, these are the two arguments I think are the most convincing. First, discipline in the local church requires church membership. There's no way to do church membership or discipline in my reading of the Scripture. Rather, if you do not have membership. And I'd, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. And if you're going to hold another opinion of this, which many do, that are brothers and sisters in Christ, but if you're going to hold a different opinion of this, I, I think that what you're going to do is you're redefining a bunch of theological biblical phrases that the church seems to have understood for a long period of time as meaning something, and you have to change them. And one of those things you have to change is the definition of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 18, and I'll read verses 15 through 17 just so we can get a clear view here. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Now, why this is important is I think that it makes the Bible almost nonsensical to say when it means tell it to the church, it means the universal church, first of all. When we read in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 of excommunication having to happen and church discipline taking place in those seven churches in Asia Minor, we never see Jesus saying to Laodicea, go to Smyrna and discipline them, right? Each church is responsible for their own congregation. And here we see them saying, you tell it to the local assembly of saints gathered. Was that every person that happened to enter the doors that day? I would certainly hope not. What if 50% of the people coming in were pagans that day to that church service? Are we going to give equal vote to those people? I would say certainly not. And notice with me, further down, that the language of, of keys is used. Um, and not, not explicitly, but truly I say to you, Jesus says, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever is loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And I, again, I say to you, if two or three agree about anything they ask, it shall be done to them by their Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Okay, so the binding and loosing has been historically taken as receiving people into church membership, binding them together with you, and loosing them, expelling them from membership. And what I'm saying is you cannot expel from membership, as the Bible teaches we ought to do, if they're not received first into membership. Um, simple argument, but I, I think a, a powerful argument. I'll turn to a couple passages just to cement this in our mind. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see church discipline taking place in the church in Corinth. 
I'm not going to read the whole text. Let me, um, we, I think we know the context here. We have a man who's involved with deep sexual immorality that not even the pagans participated in, where he was sleeping with his father's wife. Very explicit, strong sin being talked about. And notice what Paul says. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Um, And we could continue down. He reinforces his argument, saying that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, so he cast out the old leaven so that you might be a new lump. And all I'm proposing is that if we don't have an idea of church membership being required in the Scripture and being formative and normal in the Scripture, then we can't make sense out of this text of Scripture. He can't be saying to everyone gathered together that day, you cast this one man out. Nor can he think that everybody that's gathered together in this building is part of the the lump that he's talking about because what if pagans come in, right? It's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the covenant members of the body of Christ. Again, to re... I'll give you one more. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Chapter 2. Probably talking about this same man that is being discussed in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says in verse 5 of chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you, notice this language, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow." Um, This is one of the key texts that I have that I think promotes congregational polity. It seems like the decision, the authority that was given to the people was voted on in some manner, right? Or other way, way, uh, the word majority makes no sense. I'm going to repeat myself. And again, I don't think it makes any sense to consider that it was just a majority of people gathered together in that place on that day. But there had to have been a known membership that these are baptized, covenant-believing members in this church. So, the second, in my opinion, strongest argument, and perhaps the strongest argument in my view, is that as an elder of a local church, I must know the specific people that I have charge over. Okay? Now, I don't think that most people have a problem thinking that an elder of a church is only the elder of a local church, right? I don't know many people that would say that I have the authority to march down to the Presbyterian church down the street, go in there and start rebuking people for what they're doing wrong and bring them under church discipline, right? I have a certain amount of authority delegated to me, and it's over a certain group of people. And again, it can't be just the people who enter the doors on any particular day. What that does is it really elevates the structure of the building, right? The location, rather than the gathered assembly of God's people. Now, there's a few texts that really stand out to me. One would be Acts chapter 20, verse 28. And as you're turning there, just think with me. When elders are called elders in the New Testament, they're elders of a specific church and congregation. Now, If the elders can be numbered and named, isn't it reasonable to think the people he has charge over can be numbered and named? Acts chapter 20, 
Now, this is Paul. And again, he calls the elders from Miletus. Paul knows that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be bound by the Jews and he might die. And so he's giving them strong exhortation. Notice the language that he uses in verse 28. To these elders, he tells them, pay careful attention to yourselves and notice to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Right? To care for the church of God. He, and to pay attention to what? All the flock. Right? What's being put forward in their mind here is that every individual member of that congregation you have special charge and care over. Don't, don't uh, favoritize. That's not a word. You know what I mean. Don't have favoritism over one group of people than another. You have the charge as an elder to take care of the whole flock. And that is impossible, I'm going to tell you today, if you don't have a numbered, named group of people. Not every person that enters the door is under my charge Because if that's true, I'm going to quit today, okay? Today. Um, And part of the reason I have that strong of a reaction is Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Because terrifying things are said to elders about the people that they have charge over. We've had many people come and leave this church. We've had many unbelievers come here that we've tried to evangelize. Say that I'm responsible for those souls is something I cannot personally bear. Notice what is said. Obey your leaders in Hebrews 13, 17 and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give account. To give account. That's why we're so careful. Me and Brother Joey want to interview people. Who comes into the church? Why we should be so careful of people who come into the church Because I'm going to have to give account to this person. It's a lot easier to do that on the front end than the back end. And notice, uh, I'll just add this. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. Um, And then 1 Peter chapter 5. Again, the argument is that if elders are called to have charge over the church, it must be to be logically consistent and even in any way doable. It has to be a numbered, named, known group of people. He, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2. I'm going to read verse 1 as well. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. Just notice quickly the elders that are among you, right? These are the elders that you know are in charge of your particular soul, Okay. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God. Again, notice the language. That is among you. Not every member of the church of Christ globally. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Okay. So, taking these first, one, two, three. I should have counted beforehand. I'm sorry. Um, Four arguments. Um, I believe that if you gather all of these things together and you consider them and think over them, the only way to rightly do church is to have a known church membership where membership is defined as being devoted to one another, as citizens are devoted to a country, as family is devoted to one another in the family structure. Um, Because the last argument is that New New Testament ethics, the one another's of Scripture that we read, right? I would say that they don't make any sense unless we are devoted to a specific group of people. Now, 
We can think of all these texts, and I think again, as you read through Romans chapter 12, right? That we should honor one another. The Roman people would have specific people in their mind. People that they're tempted not to honor, right? I need to honor that brother because he's one of Christ's people. But I think the, the command that sticks in my mind, and I could be wrong, but just thinking about this this morning, preparing to come up here, the command for unity. Where do we see a command for unity in the Scripture? Certainly. Certainly. We, we have a lot of these commands, right? The one that sticks out to my mind is in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, again, we must consider the fact that this book, the book of Ephesians, is a letter written to a local church in Ephesus that could be found and named, and Paul knows the specific people that gather in that church, and he writes to them saying, I therefore, in verse 1 of chapter 4, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called. And Okay, how do we do that, Paul? Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I'd ask you today. Paul is writing to a specific group of people saying, you need to bear with one another and you need to seek unity. If there is no formal church membership where you know you're devoted to a specific group of people, this is not a possible thing to do. And in fact, I think a, a lot of our American individualism, and I'm from the West, I'm, I'm from Colorado, individualism in the West is strong. Like, I've got my 40 acres, and I don't want to come off that 40 acres, right? This is my territory, my place. And I'm not going to be devoted to any community except for maybe my family, right? This is strong in our culture. And I, I have the sense, certainly not everybody that believes that there's no formal membership, but one of the reasons is I don't have to maintain unity. If that brother or sister offends me, there's nothing keeping me here. I'll just go down the street. And that's what we see in our churches. Even churches that have membership, we have such a low view of being devoted to one another in love that we quickly abandon our responsibilities. But I think that if we search the New Testament, we can see that the people knew specific members they'd covenanted with to be part of that body and that they were commanded to walk in peace and love towards one another. And those one another's have a specific face and name attached to them. Uh, forgive me for being beating a dead horse, so to speak. Hebrews chapter 10 is the last text that I'll bring up in this regard. Verses 24 and 25. Again, just keeping in mind that when the people who heard these letters in these local churches, they would have names and faces in mind. And let us consider, verse 24 says, how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It seems from the text that what's implied, there were people, members of this Hebrew congregation, who weren't meeting together, that were forsaking the assembly of the saints together. And he's writing to these people to correct that and to stir one another up to love and good works, right? Um, so, application here is, I, I believe, and there is probably better defenses out there 
um, better arguments perhaps. These were the clearest things that come to my mind this week. I think if you gather these things together, you have nowhere to go, but we are commanded to be members of a local church. And if you don't like the idea of formal church membership as on a roster or something like that, I don't know that I necessarily am going to argue with you. You're commanded to be devoted to a local body, right? But the church has to be a part of that, and I think what you end up with is, is a membership role with people on it, and I would say the way that we, we tried to attempt to do things here. Um, we're called to be members of the local church, and if you're a member of the local church here today, we're commanded to be devoted to one another, to be devoted to one another. We are commanded, I love how the 1689 says it, and I can't quote it verbatim, but, but we are a society that has voluntarily committed to walk together. That's what we are, okay? Do we have any questions? Nice ones. Or not nice ones, I'm just kidding. <laughs> While you're thinking about if you want to raise your hand or not, um, we have this good book. We have a couple copies in the church library, church membership by Nine Marks. Uh, we love Nine Marks ministry, especially these little books talking about discipline, church membership, deacons, those kind of things. We think they're very, very helpful. Brother. I don't need a softball. I was kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. You're born into it, right? There's no formal membership. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 So I can see an argument being, well, then we don't need formal membership mm-hmm. in the local body because in the same way as family, you know, you just know who your family is. Yeah. And, and I think the, the application, were you done, brother? I'm sorry. So I think the application of that could be true. If we are in a, in a desert community in the middle of Iraq or something where we have five brothers meeting together, there probably isn't much of a necessity to get a formal roster out, write down all the names, go through it, review it, and those kind of things, right? Nowhere are we required to have that kind of uh, um, diligence, so to speak, right? But I, I think that the gospel applies to particular cultures and particular ages, and that we are commanded in 1 Corinthians 14 to have order in the congregation, order in the church, right? That this is a, we think, a necessary and uh, common sense step to have that, right? Because you're right. Uh, in family, you know, there's not necessarily a formal sense, but almost in every culture that's ever existed, there is a legal sense of being a part of somebody's family that is recorded in some way, somewhere. Um, and be adopted into a family, Sure. Well, and, and I think if, I, I chose not to put this in here because I didn't think it was, I thought it was the weakest of all the arguments. But if we do a biblical theology of church, right, and we look back into the Old Testament, um, we see that the, the people of Israel could be numbered and named, right? They, they knew who were members of their families, their clans, their tribes, right? Um, and, and they were a part of that. The priest, when he went in, we're talking about elders in the New Testament, but the priest of the Old Testament, he went in to intercede. What did he have on his shoulders and on his breastplate? He had the names of the 12 tribes of the people of Israel, a specific group of people, right? Um, there were certain people that were not allowed to enter into God's courts in the Old Testament because they were outside of that, that covenant community. So I think that's a good point, brother, that we, we need to think of that, and it doesn't have to look like how we do it exactly, 
That's not what we're saying. But there needs to be some way to know who's in my charge and who the one another's of Scripture applied to specifically to you. We have to know that. Um, we have to have a way to do church discipline. I won't go through all the points again. Do we have any other questions, thoughts? Okay, well, I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we come before you. Um, I thank you for, uh, for just the study through this this week. It's, uh, it's cemented this fact in my mind. I, I pray that if there are any that are contemplating joining a local church, whether it be ours or somewhere else, that you would um, you convince them. God, if, if you would uh, speak to us as members of this congregation, to me, God, it's, it's a good reminder that I need to be devoted to this family that you have put me in, this citizenship that you have gathered me into, um, and that I would exercise myself in love and the gifts of the Spirit to serve my local body. And I pray that you would grow us through this, help us to, to sharpen one another in this element. In Christ's name, amen.